we are back. Welcome to Behind the Lens. It is Labor Day, and we are here laboring. Do we get applause for laboring, Brian? Well, yeah, we do. He's nodding his head up and down. We do have applause. If you'd like him to be played, then give me a moment here to stall on looking for that file. Yeah. Because it does exist. We have a computer here at Adrenaline Radio that houses all these cool files like this one. Yes, for laboring on Labor Day. But it's not just Brian and I laboring here today. I am thrilled to have an incredibly prolific writer, director, producer, editor. Steve Balderson is here with us. More applause, Brian. <laughs> Our computer here at Adrenaline Radio is awesome. It has all these... Com- there we go. Okay. Obviously, the computer thinks that it's not supposed to labor on Labor Day. Right. So, welcome, welcome, what, Steve. What does I, the audience think of me, though? I don't. I don't know. What does the audience think of you? Oh, my computer froze. <laughs> Hang on, I have a, a, a clip right here for myself. Uh oh. Uh oh. Well, well. Oh. <laughs> I'm not quick enough. I meant oh, that That's for me, not you, Steve. I know. Thank you. Oh, oh. You know, when you get a minute, Brian, I do need you to come and turn the monitor on my camera around for us. Oh, he's going to do that right now, isn't it? That's so nice. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I love having Brian. I mean, this. Everybody should have a Brian. Everybody should have a Brian. Do you have a Brian? Not anymore. I mean, with all the work that you do, you have. I've had several. Several. A lot of them are unreliable. Brian is extremely reliable. He is such a great help. Stop shaking your head. You know, it's all the audio clips that everybody hears every week. Brian, I transcribe everything, time market, and then come in here and Brian cuts every one of those for me. Hmm. You know, which, cool. which he doesn't have to do. And I don't think he does it for anybody else. We can keep talking about me for the rest of the hour. That's fine. <laughs> it's my favorite subject. Well, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about some favorite subjects of mine and Steve's about all, films. Four films out at the same time. Isn't that wild? This it's practically unheard of. I I, I just you know, and we're going to get into every single one because right now I'll give you a heads up. Now you've got El Gonzo that is opening this Friday. At the Arena Cinema in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and it's going to run from the 9th through the 15th. Mm-hmm. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Christian Mioli, for being smart enough to book this wonderful film. Uh, then you've got Firecracker. It's 10th anniversary showing, or 15th? 10th? 11th. 11th. Uh, and that's coming back to the arena for a special screening on the 10th of September. Mm-hmm. Then you currently have on, a- on AXS TV and other platforms... Elvis Lives. Any Elvis fan out there, you have to see this film. And as we talk about the film, you're going to find out why. And then, one of the funniest things I have seen, you all know I love horror, I love campy horror, I love comedic horror that is over-the-top, sudsy good, and that is exactly what Helltown is. Cool. Yeah, it's, you know. So, we're going to talk about, what did you just do? All of a sudden, I lost, I lost my own voice in my head. <laughs> oh, try it now. Is that better? <laughs> I heard you the whole time. Oh, oh I, thank you. Sure. I heard you, too. I didn't hear me. Are you good now? 
Yes, I am. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. But before we get into movie talk, we have the all-important. Steve has been made aware of mm. this very important segment of the show. The, what is it, Brian? The Star The start of the program. The Star, Star Wars, Wars oh, Countdown. Star Wars Countdown. Yes, Star Wars Countdown. Uh, like I said, every day it's about seven days less than last week. I've still not cracked why that is, but hopefully one day I will. Uh, Rogue One is coming out at the end of this. Actually, we're not looking at Rogue One first. We look at Star Wars Episode Eight. That's the one that we count down to, but we count down to Rogue One. And what is the release date on that? That is uh, the 15th of December of 2017. So we got to wait a whole other year. But, I mean, we have only 465 days, 12 hours, 53 minutes. And as soon as I'm done speaking the sentence, about 30 seconds to go. Until Star Wars Eight, until Star Wars Eight is available for all of us to watch. I'm like I said, I was saying earlier off off air. I'm going to buy my ticket as soon as they're available for this one, and also for the next one that's coming out in 101 days. That's Rogue One, a Star Wars story, which is kind of cool because I mean, once we hit that 100 mark, merchandise starts coming up. Uh, they they I remember they they're going to pump out. If I remember correctly from Episode Seven, they're going to start releasing merchandise way before the movie even comes out. So well, of course, I I'm I'm waiting for my Gillette shaving cream. Well, and plus you with, uh, Felicity <laughs> Jones on it. <laughs> you already saw, but you already saw in the Disney store some of the new merchandise. Yeah, coming they ha- out. they have some of the pre orders available. There's nothing in store yet. They're still they still have Kylo Ren. Throughout the store in the Star Wars section, so I'm sure once episode uh, or when a Rogue One comes out, they'll probably put those aside for a bit, uh, and then they're going to have the Felicity Jones characters as well. And as we'll have Darth Vader back. Darth, I hope they do a Darth Vader line of something. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm content if he just walks across the screen for five seconds, just on his way to the bathroom or something <laughs> in the background. I'm, that's fine with me as long as he's in the in the. Like, again, that's all I need. I need Darth Vader. And it's cool because I, I read I read a comment online saying this is going to be the first time there's going to be no Skywalker, but we have Darth Vader in it. So who cares? No, no film is ever without a, a Skywalker in it. But that's the magic of these movies. It's a Skywalker film, and we have droids, and we have droids, and we also have. Uh, they actually released a con- the the concept art of a new droid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I forget I forget the the call, the naming of the droid, but. I mean, they all look like R two D two in mm-hmm. a sense. If you want a picture of what he looks like, but he's just colored differently. Looks like a lot of fun. The shock troopers and the death troopers look pretty. See cool. See how excited he gets about Star Wars. I'm ready. That's amazing. And this one's going to be a lot better, not better than Episode Seven, but it's going to be uh, even more of a recall to the nostalgia of that I wasn't around for for the original Star Wars because this is taking place way before Episode Seven even. Yeah. Was was. Yeah, it's the precursor. It's in between. Three and six. It's going to be cool to see all that old technology with okay. new technology, <laughs> but with old with you know, like I like the practical effects, but it's going to look like I love the look of Star Wars, the A New Hope, and I can't wait to see that done now, like nowadays, uh-huh. as if it's almost like if A New Hope was was made in 2016. Okay, I, I am so excited for this. I can't wait to see. It's, we this. can tell. Yeah. yeah, we can tell now. You know, because you have been making films for a while. And, you know, was the Star, the original Star Wars franchise, you were around for that, unlike someone. Um, mm-hmm. Did that impact you? And, and was that a driving force or an influence on moving you into making movies and directing? Well, I think I had already begun. When did the first one come out? 77. Okay, I was two. Oh. So I, I don't know if I was conscious if I went to it. But, of course, I saw it when I was... Old enough to see it, sure. three or four, maybe five, um, and yeah, it really informed a lot of things for me. I mean, the idea of having the force, you know, and having like 
the the power inside yourself to just do whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of raised with the idea that anything in the world is possible as long as we turn inward and find out how to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it totally was a part of growing up. I My grandfather had a video camera, like a big beta tape thing. <laughs> and he always like carried it around and I couldn't coerce him into letting me borrow it. I had to have been six or seven. Oh my gosh. And my younger siblings were always the subjects of whatever I wanted to film. So it, I've been doing it forever. Oh my yeah. God. How fun. So how did it feel for you when you moved away? Because your second film, Firecracker, your sister's in it. Mm-hmm. You know, but then you finally moved away from not just shooting your siblings. Uh, you know, how exciting was that for you as a filmmaker? Oh, it was pretty cool. I mean, in high school and then in at CalArts when I was at college, um, I got to meet people who were actually actors and, you know, mm-hmm. people who did that for a living and, and wanted to. And to collaborate and work with them in that way was really fun because, you know, when you were a kid and you were forcing the neighborhood children to do things for you, they sometimes weren't very good. Oh. <laughs> you know, but it was exciting to like, you know, especially then to go, like my first film um, didn't have any celebrities or anything in it, but then to go from that to... Um, you know, working with Karen Black. And well, your first film was Pep Squad, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Your first feature. Yes. And um, then what I did when I cast Firecracker was I paired, you know, a movie star with a rock star and an 18-year-old kid from Topeka, Kansas, you know? And, like, the idea of, like, that you could really sort of, like, incorporate aspects of home ver- mm-hmm. with the industry and with, you know, the whole system, like, was really exciting for me. And I think mm-hmm. that that's just, it came naturally to for me to do that. Well, let's talk about firecracker here because as, <gasps> as we were talking about before the show, it, it's mind boggling. And I can't recommend this highly enough that on the 10th, while you could come to the new art and see demon and I'm host, I'm moderating the Q and a after it. I have to say, you know, as much as I want you to come see that, I'd rather have you go see firecracker on the 10th of September because it is an amazing film it is beautiful it is black and white and color and it's got a performance from karen black that how this escaped awards recognition and notice up until earlier today just before the show i had no clue now i know what happened Mm -hmm. and it was unfortunate unfortunate behind the scenes improper handling yeah it was just we were working with someone who wouldn't allow us to Send it places. And then it was sort of too late at that point. Because it is... Tell me... Talk to me about Firecracker. Because it is, it's shot in black and white and in color. And you go back and forth through the whole film. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking color, I know most of you are thinking, ah, sepia tone to color Wizard of Oz. That's not what this is. This is a pure black and white. And then you greet us with color in a carnival... That is fluorescent neon saturated that creates this sur- heightened sense of surreal mm. that then just carries you through the film as you jockey back and forth. What, how did you go about developing? Because you wrote that script also. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just the whole story of Firecracker and watching it unfold is fabulous. And then to see some of your cast members and crew from Firecracker. And now be back with you on El Gonzo. Yeah. So tell me about this beautiful film. Well, it was um, based on a true crime that happened in my hometown. And 
I was always, you know, when I heard the story, I was immediately gripped by it. You mm-hmm. know, I just, it, it was close to home. It was personal in the sense that um, although my father was around, he was too young to remember, his older sister was 17 or 18 at the time, and she was actually on the alley when they were digging up the body. Oh. So the fact that this was part of our history, mm. you know, in a sense, really, really connected me with it. And, um, you know, the idea that, you know, people say nothing happens in Kansas and whoa, boy, are they wrong. You know, sometimes <laughs> things are pretty outrageous. Um, and then, you know, the idea of having, you know, the two actors play dual parts and having half shot in black and white and half in color, um, was sort of, it, sure, it was inspired by Wizard of Oz in some sense, but it was also um, to, I don't know, I don't know how or why I came to that conclusion. It was been too long yeah. now. I mean, I, I watched it, like I said, three weeks ago, uh, and I thought, how did I do that? Like, I have no memory. Because it is just, it's so beautiful to watch. And this whole idea of duality, I see this as a theme in all of the films that you write and direct or that you direct mm-hmm. in Elvis Lives. There's a duality going on in there. Mm-hmm. In Helltown, we've got duality going on in there. In Algonzo, we definitely have duality, dual, mm-hmm. dual personality going on in there. What This is, seems to be a theme it in is. your work. Yeah, I, I'm drawn to reflection, mirror image, um, good, bad, right, wrong, you know, the, the two things. And when I, when I do like a meditation or something, I always try to work with... Um, both halves make a whole and they're both part of you, both mm-hmm. of these things. Right. And so it's like, I, I like exploring those things. Cause I think there's a lot of like really enriching, you know, character story building traits in that with mm-hmm. using that theme. And it, it just, but the thing, even though you have that theme, those themes of duality, every film that you do is different. Every film is different. I can't look at one of your films and say, oh, well, I've already seen him do that. Mm-hmm. Each one is, out of the ones I've seen, which is now four, right in a row, it's, each one is distinctly different, but there's a sense of cohesiveness. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That is your, obviously your stamp yeah. as a director. You know, when you approach a film... We'll, we'll talk about more recent ones than Firecracker. Sure. <laughs> Since, of course, I do want to know, how did you get Karen Black for that film? Uh, Perseverance. I mean, really, she turned me down maybe 10 times. I don't remember. Maybe wow. only three. But she explained why. She said that after doing Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, she felt so trapped in that character's body that it was painful for her. And she mm. said, I really don't want to live through another one of those experiences. And in this particular film, there was not only just one, but two characters that were trapped and stuck someplace and she just didn't want to do it. And then when she met me in person, she said, oh yeah, I'll do it. Like she, once she knew that it was safe and that it was me, it was, it was a different story. Ah, well, I'm so glad that she did do it. It is truly an amazing performance in the dual role. Yeah. She's outstanding. But you know. We'll, we'll jump to some more recent yes. ones because in between doing Firecracker and coming up to the to the past couple of years, you you've also done a lot of documentaries. Mm-hmm. You've done one Phone Sex. Mm-hmm. I saw that one. That's fun. So I've actually seen five of your films now. Cool. And you know, you've been jockeying all the different feature films, 
you've got comedies, you've got drama, yeah, you've got. I think the only thing you haven't done, well, you haven't done a musical, even though Karen Black does sing in Firecracker. Um, yeah, a musical, a science fiction, and a western are the three I haven't done. That's that's it. You have covered, but you've all, but you've also directed music videos, correct? Not really, no. Oh, okay. I've never really done a commercial, a music video, or a short. And when I turned 40, I thought, I feel like I should do one of those at least while I have the chance, you know, like just because I love visual storytelling and I've never had an agent or a manager in 20 years. Okay. Well, now this, this, what is the secret to this? Because you've done what, 16 features now. Mm -hmm. You've got four out there concurrently at the same time within a new three week window. Mm -hmm. That's unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, what's the secret? I know every filmmaker out there is listening right now, and they're going, how does he do it? Well, for all practical purposes, it's just doing it. I mean, it it seems easier said than done, but when I was at CalArts, the first thing they taught us was you don't need a degree to be a filmmaker. You just need to be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what am I doing in school then, you know, if that's the truth? And then I sort of asked myself, well, if... If I just need to decide to be a successful filmmaker, then I can just do that. And so, and I don't know whether it was just being raised the way I, I was in knowing that anything was possible, but I, I have a, I'm addicted to work. I love working. I love uh, being productive. I like doing things. So if I'm not working on something, I'm automatically creating something to do. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be productive. So I I usually in the past have either made it a documentary or a feature because that's just where I feel comfortable most at home. Um, I can't do too much else too well. So, (laughs) you know, um, if I'm going to do something, it might as well be related to telling a visual story. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just. And your films are extremely visual Mm -hmm. on many levels. Your visual construct is stunning. And I have to say for your new film that is premiering at the arena on Friday, Algonzo. I'm watching it and I'm thinking ethereal Terrence Malick. Mm. It's beautifully, beautifully shot with, with that, that high noon haze Mm. in the desert. But then when there is a key revelation in the third act, all of a sudden we have color, skin tones pop, hotel rooms pop, you know, everything there's, there's now life because this, there was a, there's a breakthrough Mm -hmm. that has happened. And that visual, design is just stunning and i know you did that with your with your cinematographer daniel stevens yeah who you've worked with before yeah he's great uh what is it what is it about daniel that takes you back to him um well the camaraderie the camaraderie and the sort of feeling of i mean most of my sets feel a little bit like summer camp so um we're all friends and we all like being around each other mm-hmm. and we all like to have dinner together after the shoot. We don't like flee to run back to our rooms and lock the doors. Um, I met him in 2012, I think. And we just really connected in a lot of ways, which was really great. And, you know, prior to that, I had been my own DP for a few movies. And prior to that, I had worked with two separate different DPs. Mm-hmm. Um, Rhett Bear and Jonah Toriano, both who mm-hmm. were excellent for those films. And... When, you know, think projects would come up, I'm like, well, I kind of really don't want to, it's like when you leave summer camp and you miss all your friends, you just want to get back there and mm-hmm. see them all again. So there's, I try to keep everybody that I've worked with previously involved somehow, maybe not all of them, but some of them, and then, um, meet new people along the way and bring some new people into the group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a couple of other DPs that I've worked with 
besides Daniel that are really great too. And it's like, well, I wish like, we could just all do work together, you know, like <laughs> on some movie. Like, I don't know. Could you really have like three D D P do an anthology? Sure. Right. James Franco just did that uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. With some of his NYU, with some of the students, and there were thirteen directors and uh, multiple DPs as well. Cool. And it came together in one beautiful film. Cool. And it was it was a complete narrative. It wasn't even a broken anthology. It was a complete narrative. Cool. So, you know, there we go. There's I'm putting it on the list. There, there you go. But what I find really striking. Considering that Daniel was your cinematographer on El Gonzo and on Helltown, you couldn't have two films that looked any more different. Right. And the range and the palette that you de- that the two of you developed for each of those projects. Mm-hmm. What is the process like when you sit down to, to work with him or with any of your DPs mm-hmm. to, design, to come up with that visual tonal bandwidth? Yeah, I find the inspiration and I try to find some way to be specific about communicating it. Mm. So if I just say, I want it to look like a TV show or I want it to look like X, Y, Z, I really need to have an example. So I'll either, you know, go through and I'll buy like photography annuals and I'll find images that are photographs to communicate Mm -hmm. it. Or I'll say, watch this movie, you know, Helltown should really look like Serial Mom, John Waters film. And it should really look like that. And a cross between something else. And then Helltown really should look like, you know, a dream, maybe even a French film. Mm-hmm. You know, it should really look totally differently. Um, I don't remember what the what the communication was to tell him exactly what that was. But I do remember saying it's sort of glowing and sort of, you know, like you said, the, the midday haze of the yeah. desert. It, and that was really important for to Algonzo, me. Yeah, yeah, for Algonzo, yeah. I mean, that is just stunning as you watch this because it is a journey of particularly, you know, this woman, Lizzie, who's played by Susan Trailer, who you've been working with since Firecracker. Mm-hmm. And to see her performance going from Firecracker to El Gonzo. Yeah. It shows how she's grown as an actress. She's awesome. As well. Yeah. You know, really interesting performance in El Gonzo as mm-hmm. a woman who may or may not have a memory problem and it's only through observation and listening that we slowly learn about her and find out what's really going on. It's an incredible journey that she goes on. And I want to know, why are there no other guests at the hotel that she's staying at in El Gonzo? Well, it's sort of, I wanted that on purpose to be more dreamlike. I mean, there were people sometimes milling around and we're like, oh, we have to wait until they get out of here. We have to like lock it down and close it. I really wanted it to feel like nothing existed but these two people. Yeah. It's, I'm looking at, I mean, yeah, you've got Billy, the desk clerk or the manager who popped up with, I love how he kept popping up with suitcases. He says, we found your suitcase. And, and then it's, no, it's not my suitcase. And well, did you find my teddy bear? Well, no, we didn't. These just very, some non sequitur pieces mm-hmm. that just contribute and add with the visual tone that you created at that moment until the revelation and the turning point happens in the third act. Yeah. I mean, just, but I, I kept thinking, they're the only two people in the hotel. How does this hotel stay in business? <laughs> totally. I mean, <laughs> right. In, in reality, sure. <laughs> I mean, granted, I would love to go to a hotel and be the only person there. Yeah. You know, and not be bothered. How did you find, because you shot this on location mm-hmm. and now that location is no longer there. 
Well, they rebuilt the they hotel. They rebuilt. Since, okay. Right. And it's eerie because when we were in the Los Cabos Film Festival, we went and stayed there again, as sort of to pay tribute and see everybody. And it, when they rebuilt it, they built it almost exactly like the previous one, but like the restaurant moved and like the mm-hmm. bar moved and the, some of the stuff was rearranged. So it was it was a really weird like deja vu thing, like being there like, God, it feels like the same place, but it's not at all. It was really bizarre. Okay. If the bar is moved, I would be totally lost. That's, we were. <laughs> that's it. That That's your touchstone. You know, the, where the bar and the bathroom is. Mm-hmm. In restaurants, hotels, the bar and the bathroom. Right. They move that. and that's the end because you know tell everybody what happened to the poor el gonzo hotel after you filmed oh yeah it was devastating um hurricane odile happened like four weeks later or something i was in the middle of editing and when i got the word that the hurricane had hit i looked at the scene and i felt like i was editing a ghost i mean it it really felt bizarre and then we couldn't reach anyone all of our friends that were in the film Mm -hmm. you know they had no cell service or any power so we didn't know who'd made it out or who was okay. Oh, God. Um, and then I had a friend who um, finally reached out and said, told me what had happened and sent some you know, pictures. But this was you know, a good week or 10 days later before we even really knew what was going on. Wow. And I was surprised that, of course, none of it was covered by the United States you know, television news. Wow. Team. I mean, really, you know, like um, it was horrible. But the community there is so strong and the people are so magical and beautiful. They – just rebuild. They just keep going. They just do it again, you know. Um, very admirable and, and awesome. And it is absolutely beautiful. I'm looking at your ocean views mm. that you're capturing and that co- the rock-surrounded, co- essentially a co- almost cove-like. Mm-hmm. Stunning. How did you find this location for this film? Did you start with the story and then look for the location or did you find the location and it influenced you? Cause I can see how that would go either way Both. with the film. Both. I mean, one thing that we were really, really lucky in is that the guy who drove us around in his van was Antonio, the driver who makes an appearance in the film. Right. And he is a native and I think is related to everyone there. It was like, we met the Kennedys <laughs> of Los Cabos, you know, the locals. And I said, well, we shot the film in order. And before Karen Black died, I heard this amazing piece of advice that she gave about knowing how you're really alive. Mm-hmm. And it was in, that in the unknown, when you don't know where you're going, you have to be really present and really alert. And you can you know, just be open to whatever's going to happen, right? So I said, okay, I'm going to take that energy and apply it to this story. So we had a very, very rigid script in the sense that we knew – beginning, middle, and end, and we knew exactly what had to happen, but we didn't know how it was going to happen. So on a day when I'm like, and we shot an order. So I said, okay, today we're going out. We're going to do these four things. We're going to accomplish these four moments in the film. Um, I had been on Google earth. I had found some places, you know, in Toto Santos, or I found, you know, the one swimmable beach that sort of looked like the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, We knew somewhere where we were going, but along the way, because we were an indie film, we have the flexibility of stopping. So, you know, we're traveling along and we see this mission and it's beautiful. And I'm like, oh my God, let's do this scene in there, you know? Mm-hmm. And we did. We just went in, sat down. And that is one of the most poetic scenes in the film. Totally. I love that. And you know, it's one take, one shot. You're kidding. No. One take, one shot, and mostly improvised. Oh my God. I mean, she's, you know, she's just, the character of Lizzie is just sitting in there and then 
guy just comes walking in behind her and it's just quiet and you don't know what's coming but it's very it's po- it is it's yeah. very poetic from a visual and emotional standpoint yeah after that anselm richardson i was when he did that when he performed that scene i just went up to him and i was like weeping i mean it was just so beautiful and that that happened many many times throughout the whole making of it but you know that it's just an example, you know, turning the corner then after that, we see the cemetery, mm-hmm. you know, this old ancient cemetery. And I thought, why has no, why have I never seen a photograph of this place? It's just beautiful. Let's shoot that here right now. Now, you d- so you didn't have to, all those pink flowers and things that are on all of the tomb, all the mm-hmm. tombstones, they're just there. They're there already. Yeah. Wow. You know, those little serendipitous things that happen. Mm-hmm. When you're making a film. And like you said, I th- that is one of the really big benefits of indie film. Yeah. Because you have a better chance of finding mm-hmm. that magic. Sure. Than something that is so ironed out, pre-scripted, laid out, timetabled. Yeah. As the, the tent poles are. Which is great to do. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I love doing that kind of a film too. But this was my first sort of trial of let's just be explorers. Let's just go on this adventure together and explore whatever happens mm-hmm. and see what happens. We knew, luckily, because we did have a skeleton in a script. It was, you know, like a, a good 45-page script. So it, not everything was dialogue out, but we knew what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like we were just flinging it, you know, every day. But mm-hmm. that might even be an interesting way to shoot a movie, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd be really eager to do it right now, but at some point I will. Now, you've got El Gonzo, which is... Not totally scripted out with dialogue. Mm-hmm. What about something like Helltown? Because the, some of the, the comedic timing, it's so rapier, and those one-liners are just so yeah. pointed. You've got to have that. That, that has to be time. It, yes, it yeah. was. That was verbatim. I mean, I give actors a little flexibility, a little leeway if you know they just – whatever. But it never improv. That film was not mm-hmm. you know, open to it because you're right. The, the, the timing and – the beats and all that was really super important. Yeah. And the fact that you're blending comedy, horror, and soap opera, mm-hmm. I mean, that whole genre meld is just so beautifully done. And there again, your visuals, you've got that crispness, that clarity. And color is a big part in that film also mm-hmm. in terms of you've got Amanda, who I think is fabulous. Amanda Dybart as Chanel. Yeah. I just love her. And she's very jealous of shall I say, a lovely actress who makes you think, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Totally. Um, Chanel is typically, you've got her wearing a lot of green. Mm-hmm. Green, mm-hmm. envy, green-eyed exactly. monster. Mm-hmm. And then um, Shan- Shannon Day? Kristen. Kristen Day. Yeah. Plays our, the lead actress of Trish. Yeah. And she is perky and pink and yeah. has the, the white furniture, the Brady Bunch white furniture for her bedroom. Totally. That is exactly what the girls had in the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Was that for, And I'm looking at it, it's like, oh my god! And everything is the hair swings and uh-huh. you know, oh, you're just so oh, you're jealous of me and yeah. it's just, <laughs> but it just plays so well. And then you've got all the guys in their Letterman jackets and sure. I mean, you've got this great killer, you right. know, uh, you know the, the the Letterman the letter jacket killer, yeah. Which is, who, who did you, who do you have playing the reporter? Her name is Betty O. She has <sighs> been in, she was the principal in my first film. She was seen in Firecracker, although she didn't have a part per se. Okay. 
she was the prison warden in my film stuck. Um, I feel like she's been in a couple of other ones also, but I, she performed once at the Apollo and had standing ovation. And she's this amazing talent whose husband is in the military and lived near where I used to live in Kansas. Mm -hmm. So even though she would be involved in sort of regional theater and sometimes would go out and perform overseas or in big cities, she basically just had a life in Kansas. And I thought she's so talented. I just want to make sure that she's having an outlet for her creativity. So I just tried to make her be in everything. I, she's just, she is so much fun <laughs> totally. as a reporter reporting on the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the letterman or the leather jacket killer. Yeah. And you're just cracking up as she talks about it Yeah, because she just plays on the yellow journalistic hype that we see on the news all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is delicious. Absolutely Thank delicious. Yeah. You. <laughs> you know, I, but, and you, you've got your, the methods of the kill methods that are happening and the suspense is as you break it up episodically. Yeah. And the whole idea behind Helltown and the fact that these are the only three surviving episodes of the series that was never seen. Right. That where did you come up with the idea to approach that the storytelling of Helltown in that manner? Be, I am obsessed with serials. And especially when they're a little melodramatic, I, one of the most imprinted memories of mine was being a kid watching TV with my mom and it was this beautiful wedding. And then suddenly there were these armed guards that came smashing into the stained glass window and shot everybody in the whole church. And that was the famous dynasty. That was the dynasty scene and in that, Moldavia. Yes. It was the Moldavian massacre. I, I saw it. <clears throat> I was so obsessed. We, when it re-aired that summer or whatever, before the new season, I videotaped it and that tape was played. My dad said I was just, it was on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my, one of my favorite dreams would be to do a show, a series like that with cliffhangers. And essentially that's where Helltown came from. Uh-huh. I was like, you know, if, if I, if Helltown was a series, I would be the happiest camper. I mean, it's just the world of it. The world of Helltown is so insane and so much fun. And, and you still have, you know, the thrill and the suspense and the, all that it, that's sort of that's why we we crafted it that way to make it look like that. I think, and then you've got Debbie Roshan introducing mm-hmm. each of the segments in a in a nod to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, yes. or, or Sven Gulli or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she's always got some tongue in cheek, you know, play on what's happened, what's going to happen, <laughs> right? And you even inserted your own teaser commercials for other yes uh, for other potential shows. Yeah, we did Debbie's movie Model Hunger is coming out around around that same time or it is out already. Okay. And so I said, "Well, we'll promote your movie as one of the the trailers and that or we'll get put the trailer in it." And then she has this coffee company um and I thought, "Well, you should have a commercial and let's do one for the thing." So I got to write and do that for her too, which was oh really god. fun. I the whole I would love to see Helltown as a series. Me too. I re- it is even if I had nothing to do with it, I would be at home watching that. It is it. that funny. You've got a lot of you know, uh, you know the um, you know housewives. The first one, mm-hmm. the fake one. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it. I never watched it. Um, but it's it is just so inventive. The characters are just so over the top in their performances. But you get it. They play it seriously, yeah. but ham it up seriously. Yeah. And we're in on the joke. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's, I mean, it's just so much fun. Thank you. To watch that unfold. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, so to see that and to see something like El Gonzo, it's just a testament to you as a filmmaker 
the range that you're able to create and bring to life. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I think that um, for me, it's like a cross between a mad scientist has, you know, negative connotations to it, but I would use the word explorer, you know, like if I am thinking of a topic or if I'm interested in, in exploring or learning more about something, I'm really going to get in there and really live it up. You mm-hmm. know, when I was making, um, you know, the women in prison film uh, stuck, I, I watched all of the, the original ones you okay. know, from like, I want to live and caged and not really so much the exploitation ones, but, um, I'm like, what is this world? You know, I'm about to make one of these movies. I want to know everything mm-hmm. I can about it. You know? So, um, that's why the, the different movies I make, uh, you know, are so vastly different sometimes because it's just, okay, now that I've done that and I've explored that, I've learned that. What else do I want to learn about? Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to learn about a Western. So, you know, I love Westerns. I, I would love to be in one, not in one physically, but like be a part of something, be directing a Western or be directing a science fiction film or even a proper horror, you know, even like a psychological mm-hmm. horror, some things that I just haven't done yet. And I, I want to learn about them. I want to get in there and do the best I can. Um, and then I'll be interested in something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm happy to revisit things, but I feel like I should only revisit them after I've done more explorations. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Danny Boyle process sure. over the years of what he's done with his films. Yeah. Doing something continually different. No, yeah. I think I think it's just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, a big factor in your films that you have written and directed, because Elvis Lives is totally separate and apart because that's directing somebody else's script. Right. Is you bring in Mark Booker, who does amazing job on the scoring yeah. for Helltown and El Gonzo. Yeah. You know, just where did you find Mark and how did and how do you approach music is part of the tapestry of your films. Oh, I do a lot. Um, Rob Kleiner is another composer I've worked with. Mm -hmm. He scored almost everything for me. Um, He's fantastic too. Mark was, I met him as an actor um, first and he had been in a couple of my films, smaller parts. And then when I did the casserole club, I asked him to play one of the main characters and he was so amazing in it. I didn't know he was also a musician at the time. So when it came around, you know, I learned that and I thought, wow, I really like what you're doing. You know, would you ever score a movie? And he was like, sure. So, um, you know, Helltown's very big and, you know, gaudy and um, very sort of dramatic on purpose. And then, um, Algonzo is so simple and so intimate. What he came up with the first time I heard it, I started crying. It's very elegant. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. The, the score of Algonzo is so elegant and it's, there's a bit of, uh, there's like a haunting whisper to it. Yeah. And it's, it really is beautiful. And it m- matches that visual haze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mark is a genius. In that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I look and I listen to El Gonzo and I can't help thinking of back in the thirties when they created the Garbo effect with cheesecloth over a lens to mm-hmm. give that, that haze perfect glow. Yeah. My, my inspiration for describing the glow, I remember now, was the cemetery scene in Vertigo. Okay. When, when he's following her and he goes up to the tombstone and all the whites are just sort of glowing in that way. I'm like, how do we recreate this? Let's make this. This is what, this is what El Gonzo looks like. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it's, it's beautiful because I look at your films and I see a lot of classic film influence. Mm. Yeah. Are you a classic film fan? Totally. I mean, when I was at CalArts, my dean had me stop going to all my classes and instead do independent study with him. 
Mm-hmm. And he was in charge of the Hitchcock convention in Europe somewhere. So every Monday he would stack, give me a stack of Hitchcock films and say, mm-hmm. go home and analyze these and deliver your report on Friday. And then I would go in on Friday with, you know, overhead scene analysis and everything for all, all of the films, you know, that he gave me. And, um, so it really like was immersed into my entire system. And even before that, I was in love with all of the films that Tennessee Williams had written, mm-hmm. um, Night of the Iguana was and still is one of my favorite films of all time. You know, there's just something about the way that films used to be expressed that I really love and want to keep doing. I mean, I'm happy if it's someone else's baby to go in and and provide my gifts to give them what they want, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But if it's my baby, then I'm going to treat it like that. For the mm. most part. I mean, Helltown's not a classic film, but, but you know, like... But you have some... You've got some Hammer influences in there. Sure. You know, you can't really make a proper horror film, be it done seriously or comedically or in parody, without some kind of, of the Hammer influence. True. Right. You know. I mean, yeah, the whole, like, the whole bathroom scene. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> bathroom stall scene. It's very suspenseful, but it's it's also just thinking of... Creating suspense, you know, as one would any other suspenseful situation, even Mm -hmm. though it's a comedy, it's still the horror scenes needed to be horrific. They needed Mm. to have the thrilling aspect, even if they were sometimes ridiculous. Like one character, for instance, murders themselves, you know, which I mean, that was okay. (laughs) I, I admit I laughed. Yeah, me too. I laughed. But there again, that particular character is also over the course of the three mm-hmm. episodes played by two different people. Right, right. Isn't which that- <laughs> we've yeah. seen happen in television quite often. Yes. More often than we like. Yeah. And not as well as was done in Bewitched. Right. <laughs> but no, I mean, just, you know, all these little things that you add mm. that look like, that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, they, they may be a bit of a trope. But you you work them in so beautifully, so that they're very unique to this particular to this particular film. Yeah, thank you. And you know, but anybody who gets a chance, you have to see Helltown. You will absolutely love it. Yeah, and it's out now everywhere, like Dish, iTunes, yeah, it, Vudu, it's, all those. Places. It's on all of those things. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I produced. Um, a web series co-op at the damned and it was a very mm. tongue-in-cheek but with a lot of heavy effects as opposed to this soap opera sudsy story mm-hmm. so i mean i'm all for the soap opera sudsy take on it over the top <laughs> totally but now you mentioned you know something that's not your baby mm, yes elvis lives yes you came in to direct that how did that script find its way to you well the guys who produced it the asylum for axs tv um were the distributors of my first film, Pep Squad. So back in the day, that's all they were doing. It was distributing back then. And after Firecracker, I made a film called Watch Out, which was very um, cult filmish. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that'd be great for them. So I you know, approached them and said, hey, would you guys put this one out? I w- would love to work with you again. They were awesome. They got Pep Squad out in every country. You know, it was really a good release. Too bad they didn't handle Firecracker. I know. <laughs> um, and by that point, their their business model had changed. And they said, oh, we're not taking out outside projects anymore. We're only creating in-house things that then we will also handle distribution for. Mm. And I thought, oh, it felt like a divorce. I mean, it was, you know, it was like the end of a great love affair. And um, yeah, but then, you know, over the course of the next years ahead, when I would come out to L.A. for other things, I'd 
not every time, but we would reach out and sit down and have lunch. We would hang out, go to dinner. So they were always part of the fabric, you know, of my life. And when I moved here, uh, they said, would you, you know, like to direct this film? And I thought of the concept and the concept is, um, I mean, I thought the concept was great. And the concept is that Elvis, uh, in fact, is not dead. He's in the witness protection program. Which has been rumored since the day he died. Right. And I also, it was a challenge because I knew nothing about Elvis. Okay. We just hear the collective gasp all around <laughs> well, the world I, with <laughs> that statement. I mean, I knew what, I knew enough. I mean, yeah. I know Elvis. I know who he is. I know what happened. I know the stories. I know. But I didn't know the details. When I'm reading the script and he does this karate move. And I thought, well, that's a little ridiculous. No, but that's what he did. And, and, then then I, and all of his badges that he would collect from yes. police forces all around. Yeah. And his hope. And if you get a chance now, having made this, if you haven't seen it, see Elvis and Nixon Okay. with Kevin Spacey and Michael Shannon. Kevin Spacey is Nixon. Michael Shannon is Elvis. Okay. It is incredible. And it's centers around the days leading up to the infamous photograph of Elvis and Nixon that was taken in the White House. Cool. It is the single most requested photograph from the Library of Congress. Wow. And which, by the way, your Casserole Club film, I know, is part of the permanent collection at the Library yes. of Congress. Yeah. This went wild. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I was so excited that when they called up and they, they said, you know, we'd like to invite you to become part of the permanent collection, could you send a 35 millimeter print? I thought, well, shit, we only, we filmed it on HD, you know, we don't have a 35 millimeter print. The 35 millimeter print would cost what half, you know, what the budget of the film was. Yeah. I mean, not really, but close. Um, it was interesting because I was, as I was bluffing my way out of that sentence, they said, or a DVD is fine. You know, just oh, something that we have okay. in the library. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Well, I'll send that then. <laughs> okay. That, that, that works. Yeah. That works. But Elvis lives. You know, any Elvis fans out there, any conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists out there, this is such a fun film. Um, Delandra Williams' script. Yeah. The casting is wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody embodies the essence of their respective characters. Mm -hmm. Especially, I've got to say, Doug Birch as Vernon Presley. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, Doug is awesome. Absolutely amazing, but then you get into Elvis's his his the Elvis Mafia, mm -hmm. and you get in and you get you know Dave Violi who plays Joe who was one of his top guys, yeah, um, and then Red who that, played by Britt George that did turn out to be a huge, yeah. a huge, you know debacle for the Presley camp. Yeah. With, you know, him divulging and writing a book and right. things like that. And I really loved the way these guys brought all that to life. I mean, it was really amazing to be there as if you were there in person. Yeah. Now, where did you shoot that? Because obviously you did not shoot at Graceland, mm -hmm. but you have the opulence. Yeah. And then there have been enough photographs of Elvis's TV family room where everybody would gather. Mm -hmm. Of course, I love the AstroTurf down on the ground in there. Sure. That was really a, a nice little touch. Where did? What was your location for that film? Well, they were all over the place. Um, the exterior of Graceland was in Altadena. The interior was in um, Van Nuys, the, you know, the other places. I mean, they were just all over the place, um, mostly in the valley area. Mm -hmm. Um and it was hard because uh, everybody knows that. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges was that we're making a movie on the most famous person on the planet, you know, and it, you can't really mess it up. But you, you have some some leeway. Like there's some like, 
um, suspension of disbelief because it clearly isn't Elvis. It's not real. It's right. so we had some wiggle room, but um, I actually found that there were like three homes in Altadena that looked identical to Graceland, and I thought, did they do it on purpose? Probably. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There are devotees out there. Yes. That, oh yes. Right down to you know the blueprints. Oh yeah, I'm sure for scale. Wow. Yeah, but even the production design, the master bedroom with the mirrored nightstands, yeah, it's just hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. But it really does. It feeds into everything about the script and everything that we see unfolds. Feeds into speculation and rumors and fact Mm -hmm. that has you know that is part of the zeitgeist. Mm And I, I just th- thoroughly enjoyable and so much fun. Cool. And I think a perfect double feature is Elvis and Nixon and Elvis Lives. Seriously. Yeah. I think it's a great double feature. Cool. Well, I'm going to go watch that one now. Oh, I, yeah. And you have to let me know what you think of it. Okay. I think you're really going to like it. But, you know, something that you also do with all these films that you do and, you know, is quickly 16 of them in 20 years, mm-hmm. always working. You've put together your Maverick workshops. Yes. Tell everybody what your Maverick workshops are about. So some of these filmmakers that can't quite get it together, that have their dreams, but need that extra oomph. Yeah. I When I went to CalArts, I thought that I would leave with a finished film. I, somehow I got this idea that when you go to film school, that somehow they would teach you how to write the script and then you'd write it. And then... They'd teach you how to cast it, and you'd cast it. And then they would teach you how to film it, and you'd film it. And then they'd teach you how to sell it, and you'd sell it. You know, I I just had this idea in my mind that was not true. And so when I left, I thought, well, I should do that. But I didn't yet because I hadn't learned enough, you know. I wanted to offer that to people because when I was young and an aspiring filmmaker, there was no map. I don't, There isn't a map even today. Yeah. Um, so all I can do is really invite people who want to know my secrets on how to do a film. And part of that is questioning how much money can you raise? It's, it's the reverse of how most traditional films are made, which is um, bottom up budgeting. You know, like you got to have this and that's going to cost that. You got to have this. It's going to cost that. I say, well, let's do top down budgeting. How much money do you have? And what can you do with that? Mm-hmm. You can make a movie for any amount, but it just, the questions are, where you put the money, what you spend the money on. So if you only can raise $50,000, you can make a movie, but what kind of movie can you make for $50,000? If you only have $150,000, what kind of a movie can you make for that? And then I'll teach them how to do it and we'll walk through the whole process. So there was once a a young guy who came to me and he said, I really want to know how to make a film. And he didn't know anything about film at all. And so I walked him through the whole process and he made a short film and it was really cool to see him grow and learn in that and then accomplish something and then have walk away with an actual tangible thing. Um, but I also do like, you know, hour long, two hour long workshops that are more about a specific topic, like finding investors or how to shoot, you know, in London without permits, you know, stuff like that. That's that's uh, and for any filmmakers, I've said this before, I'll remind people again. Culver City, free. You, you have to get permits, but they don't cost you anything. Oh, cool. That's great to know. So, yeah. You still have to pay for your off-duty cops, but mm-hmm. permit fees can get very, very pricey. Yeah. As any filmmaker knows, if they have tried to go the legitimate route mm-hmm. 
and obtain permits so they don't get shut down. Yeah. But no, that's now people can go to your website to get to find out about the Maverick work, workshops and the Maverick mentorship. Yes. And that's Dikenga. Yes. D i k e n g a dot com. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's I love the way the website's set up because you can click on the top, you know, on the toolbar at the top, and it'll drop down every single film that Steve has done. And you can go in there and look at and look at the one sheets and click on it. And it'll take you to information on each film. And in some cases, like Elvis Lives, you've got trailers there. You you can then pop out to buy it. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I mean, people can. It's full service. They can. There's no reason not to see a Steve Balderson film. Well, thank you. You know, from your website. Yeah. Yeah, and people can find you on Twitter. Mm-hmm. S. Balderson. Mm-hmm. And people can find you on Facebook. Yes. Steve Balderson. Yes. Yes, we're not confusing anybody here. Right. It's very simple. Yeah, and it's Dakanga on Instagram. Oh. Yeah. So we have Instagram also. Which is primarily mostly food. I love living in Los Angeles for the idea of eating anywhere. I mean, like uh, all <laughs> over every place. <laughs> um, and I just get so wrapped up in the beauty of food sometimes. I just can't help it. And I know it's a little annoying, but... Though that's, no, most people, it's cats and food. That's what they're taking okay. pictures of. All right, good. <laughs> I, I just do one of my cats. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, it. You know, I, nobody wants to see McDonald's or, you know, bar food at the corner. <laughs> you <know>. I do. <laughs> well, <laughs> so now how long have you been in L.A.? Six months. Okay, so what wonderful food places have you found? Well, my favorite I already knew about, and it's Din Tai Fung in Glendale. Okay. I went to the original one in Taipei once and fell in love with it. I was doing a movie in Hong Kong and there was one there and I was addicted to it. Um, so to know that I'm living in a place that offers that, I'm so happy. So what other, And what other places have you discovered? Um, I have discovered. What have I discovered? Um, Luke is really good. And you're about to discover Musso and Franks. I'm about to go to Musso and Franks on Saturday. After, after the screening of... El Gonzo at Arena Cinema on Las Palmas in Hollywood. Yeah, we decided that that would be the day Susan Trailer and Slim Richardson and I would present the film at 7.45 Saturday and then do a Q&A afterwards and then hang out. Yeah. And that's what you should do. And Musso's is a place to do it. Yeah. If you've never been there. Right. Or Maselli's is across the street as well. Yeah. Which I have been to. I've been there. Okay. Well, then no. Then you have to go to Musso's. Yeah. You know, and my friend Pete, he's the... I have my own Musso and Frank black card, by the way. Oh, cool. <laughs> my friend Pete is the maitre d' that night. Great. Yes. He comes on at 4 o'clock. <laughs> Great. Dave is there up until 4. <laughs> cool. It's, it's, see, you want to know about food? Mm-hmm. There are very few places I go, but the ones I go to. <laughs> That's amazing. I'll tell them hello. <laughs> it's like you go to the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. You go to the bar. You go at night. You only let Fabian wait on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have you go you go to the Beverly to the Beverly Wilshire and Beverly Hills. You only let Muneer wait on you. Cool. Yeah, you know, I'm very limited. I'm, my 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 scope is very small. But it's very thorough. <laughs> it, it's very thorough, but and you'll find that as you go bandying about, the longer you're here, you'll try places, but mm. it's like okay, it's fine to go. Yeah, it's a it's a run in the mill coffee shop. If I'm going to actually break into my schedule mm-hmm. and take time to go somewhere. I want to go where I like the people, yeah. where I like the service, where I can walk in after at 10 o'clock at night and they know I've been at screenings and I can go sit in my corner and start typing up thoughts on the film to the publicist 
and they will make sure that nobody bothers me. I love places like that when you have that rapport with them. You know, and it, they're hard to find because most people, they want to turn over seats, turn over tables. Mm-hmm. And sometimes all you want is to just be in a place with that ambient noise. And I'm sure that you get to that point when you're writing as well. Mm-hmm. You need some kind of something to remind you there's life around you. Right. Yeah. What does what does inspire you for your scripts? Art. Art. Yeah. Um, if I've finished a film and I don't know what I'm working on next, I will go to Venice for a month and just soak it up. Wow. You know, or, I mean, not like all the time, but like, uh, you know, I have done that. Um, or you go to a museum and you just... I have this fun game I play with myself where when I walk into a museum, I do a quick scan of the room at the lighting in paintings. And if one makes me stop, I will go directly to that and just stare at it and figure it out and explore it. And then I will leave. Wow. Yeah. Have you been to LACMA yet? No. I know. LACMA and the new Broad. I need to go to the, both of those. I've been to the other ones, but. Um. Yeah. You should also go to the Peterson Automotive. Okay. Because the way that they have the cars displayed mm-hmm. it's art unto itself and looking at some of the of the cars that they have the cars are art okay cool great yeah that stuff like that inspires me so i'll go if i just do all of that you know and and all of it and take it all in then i go home and i am inspired by whatever that was and i don't know if that leads to the the story or the script at that moment mm-hmm. but it will eventually be wow. useful yeah and do you write alone or – because I know some of these you've written with, with writing partners. Yeah. So do you do a, a, a FaceTime with each other? You sit down one-on-one or does one write and send it to the other and say, hey, what do you want to toss in here? Um, a little bit of all of that. My favorite way to do it is I am happy to auditorily brainstorm to the end of the day. But I don't know if I'm all that keen on then sitting down and writing that. Mm-hmm. I would rather – Collaborate with someone by, I work on it for a week, send it back to you. You work on it for a week. And then we just go back and forth. Or we brainstorm the, the whole structure and the outline. And then it's always important for me to have a really strict floor plan for the, a film. Um, so that I know, you know, like how much lumber we're going to need before we build the thing. Sure. So, but once we have the outline, then it's just filling in the details, you know, the prose and the dialogue and the whatever. That is easy to just back and forth, you know. And then once we get it all laid out, then it's okay to come together and talk about the details. That's just how I like to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do prefer to um, that situation over writing by myself. Um, I'm a great editor as far as writing goes. If somebody sends me a script, mm-hmm. then I can take it and fix it, make it better. And we just got, we just got our cue from Brian that we are out of time. How's that possible? I, I know. Steve Balderson, thank you so, so much. This has been, you have to come back. I will. This is awesome. A very good pleasure. Oh, here. this has been an absolute treat. La- this is the way to labor on Labor Day. Right. I'm telling you. Yeah. But for everyone out there, Elvis Lives, you can find it now on every platform there is. Helltown on every platform there is. El Gonza opens Friday at Arena Cinema on Las Palmas in Hollywood. And then... Firecracker special screening on Saturday the 10th at Arena Cinema. Yes. So, until next week. And next week, remember, all you Last Ship fans, 
Al Coronel, and we may have a surprise or two, last ship surprise or two. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.